Preparation is a key part of Christmas, isn't it? I think we all can identify with the frenzy that Christmas preparation can often turn into, the hustle and the bustle and the pressure. What I want us to carefully consider this morning is a different and far superior kind of preparation that we must make at Christmas. The wonderful carol, Joy to the World, has this profound exhortation in it. Let every heart prepare him room. That's the most central kind of preparation that we need to make at Christmas. A heart preparation. Make way, make room in our hearts for the Son of God and his work. As we look to Scripture, we see how God provided a messenger to help people prepare for the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. God was careful to send a forerunner who paved the way and invited people to make room in their hearts for the Lord Jesus. And so we're going to examine the work of that messenger this morning. We're continuing our three-week Advent series uh, this morning. We'll conclude that next Sunday on Christmas Day. And Advent, as we mentioned in the introduction to the service, means coming. And in this season, we reflect on his first coming, Jesus Christ, and we long for, look forward to his second coming. So at his first coming, Jesus inaugurated his kingdom of life and light. And his earthly ministry dealt a crushing blow to sin, Satan, and death. Yet the war wages on until he comes again and fully eradicates our foe. Sin will be no more. No more crying. No more tears. Suffering will be vanquished. That's what we look forward to. So we live now in an in-between, the already and the not yet. Jesus has inaugurated his kingdom, but he's not yet fully consummated his kingdom. And so that's what Advent is about. It's a little bit of a tension exercise. We, we look back and we look forward. We know the king has come and we know the king is coming again. And so we're continuing in our series uh, in the introduction to the gospel of John, also known as John's prologue, the first 18 verses there in John. And this series is entitled, The Word Became Flesh. The Word Became Flesh. So let's turn together in our Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 in the Bibles we've provided on your chairs. You can find that on page 886, page 886. If you're here this morning and you don't own a copy of the Bible, we say this every Sunday, we want to give you a gift. We want to give you a Bible. So in the entryway, there are several shelves, and you'll find on the third shelf, the one that's closest to the restroom, you'll see hardback black Bibles. Take one of those. If, if a friend needs one, get them for one for them as well. John chapter 1, uh, this morning we're going to cover verses 6 through 13. The Apostle John writes, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. 
he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So last week, as we introduced this Advent series in the introduction uh, to John, we, we spoke about how this prologue, this first word of the Gospel of John, is filled with the deep things of God. It is impossible, this side of heaven, to plumb the depths of the theological truths here in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. These are deep truths about the nature and work of God that frankly boggle our minds, that inspire awe and wonder in us. And we talked how awe and wonder are the fitting feelings at Christmas. We ought to be overcome with awe and wonder as we reflect on the incarnation. God became a man. Think about that. It is mind-boggling. Jesus became a man. He stepped into our shoes. He experienced our existence. He shouldered our sin at the cross, and he rose in victory over our sin and over our death that we deserved through his resurrection. This is the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And when you consider that and encounter him, you, you can only respond with awe and wonder. The appropriate sentiment at Christmas, awe and wonder. I also mentioned as we introduced this series last week that uh, this prologue is a pregnant prologue in that it is filled with wonderful truths that John introduces in the prologue and that he revisits throughout his entire letter. It's like a good essay. What do you, the first paragraph in a good essay introduces the things that you will talk about later. And so that's what John does. He's piling up themes in the prologue that he then revisits later and more fully unpacks for us. And so themes like the divinity of Jesus, light and life, the new birth, bearing witness, grace and truth, all of these themes we encounter in the first 18 verses, and then John will go to great length to explain them further throughout the rest of his gospel. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 5, and our central focus was the divinity of Jesus. This week, we look at verses 6 through 13, and we have two areas of focus here. First, the messenger of Jesus, and second, the responses to Jesus. The messenger of Jesus, followed by the responses to Jesus. This penetrating look at how people responded to Jesus upon his first coming. So that's a brief two-part outline of our time together. The messenger of Jesus, followed by the responses to Jesus. First, the messenger of Jesus. Uh, let's look together again at verses 6 through 8 in John 1. The apostle John tells us, he's the author of this, this gospel, the apostle John. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Now, don't be confused here. There's multiple Johns. These are different people. The gospel writer is the apostle John, uh, one of the disciples in that inner circle. Peter, James, and James's brother, John, spent tons of time with 
Jesus. That's the author, but that's not the John at hand here in verses 6 through 8. The John at hand is John the Baptist, uh, a kinsman of Jesus, born of Elizabeth, Mary's cousin. And so John the Baptist and Jesus were, were, were relatives, maybe second cousins or so. So this is John the Baptist. He was the front runner, the, the forerunner of Jesus, the one who came to prepare the way, who invited people to repent of their sin and make way for the Messiah. That was John's role, to shine the spotlight on the Son of God. That was John's express purpose. So we're introduced to John the Baptist here in verses 6 through 8. And then later on in verse 15, just scan down to verse 15, we see the content of John the Baptist's message. Verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. Jesus is the foremost, and he is the one that John points to. He is the answer to humanity's greatest need, and John is just pointing people to that Messiah, to that answer for our biggest problem. We're in a predicament, and John's saying there's one coming who's going to work in your predicament and bring about a solution, an eternal solution. So John the Baptist serves as this forerunner figure of his relative, Jesus Christ. So he's the one who prepares the way for Jesus' public ministry. The way that he does that is he invites people to repent. Repentance is a 180-degree turn from the course that you're on apart from God, turning 180 and turning to God. That's what John invited people to do. Turn from your sin, make way in your heart for the work of the Messiah. He testified of Jesus. What does any witness do in the court of law? What do they vow to do? To tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's what a faithful witness does. That's what John the Baptist did he told the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth he told the whole truth in other words he didn't duck the hard stuff in fact what got john imprisoned and ultimately executed beheaded was his confrontation of king herod for herod's adultery herod married his brother philip's wife herodias and john called him out for that unrighteousness that infidelity, it ultimately got him imprisoned and later executed. So he told the whole truth and nothing but the truth. In other words, he didn't add his own self-driven thoughts to the, the message. He, he, he told the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Now think for me about your own context. If you are a Christian, you likewise are called to be a messenger and part of our role as messengers is to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. We're, we're called to invite people into a relationship with God through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And the way that they do that is by encountering his truth. They need the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Who are those people that God has placed in your path? that you have opportunity regularly to interface with, to invite to consider this message of Jesus, to share this truth with. And what, what are your 
tendencies as you share the gospel of Jesus? Where do you have weaknesses in your sharing? Some of us, friends, struggle to tell the whole truth. What do I mean by that? Well, we love to focus on the grace of God, and it is rich and abundant. But for grace to be good news, we have to share the bad news. The reality is all of us are rebels. All of us seek to live a self-willed, self-driven life. We say to God who created us, I'm okay, thank you very much. I've got this. Uh, I'm going to do my life my way. That never works because we're created, wired to live dependent lives upon our creator. So we need to share with people the reality of their sin. And I know those are hard conversations. We need to share of the end game of rebellion against God. The end game for rebelling against God for a lifetime is separation from God for all eternity in a real place of conscious torment called hell. That is a hard truth, and I shudder to share it, but it's what we have to share. It's sharing the whole truth. We've got to share. The most loving thing we can do is to share the whole truth with people. It, in fact, is unloving to withhold truth because that's what they, they need that in order to make a decision to follow the Lord Jesus. Some of us have struggles telling nothing but the truth, meaning we can add to the gospel some of our own interpretations that are off. In our conversation with people, we, we, we make it seem that we have to get ourselves cleaned up in order to come to the Lord. I had a conversation just a few months ago. A friend of mine said, I just, I'm struggling and I don't feel put together enough to come to church. I said, brother, you got to come as you are. You don't have to get yourself cleaned up. That's self-salvation. Come as you are and encounter Christ who will clean up your life. You don't have to get it put together, but most of us think, i got to get this act together, and then I can go and experience God. No, no, he says, come as you are. Come with your mess, and I'll deal with it. I'll deal with it. I alone can deal with the mess. So we can't, we can't add to the gospel. Some of us have been reared in a tradition that we have to contribute to our salvation through merits of grace and saying prayers and, and, and going through religious rituals. That is self-salvation. That's adding to the gospel. You can't add to the gospel because when you do, you empty it of its power. That's adding to the gospel. So we have to tell the whole truth. Don't, don't withhold things. And we have to tell nothing but the truth. Don't add stuff that's not there. Faithful witness Witnesses of Jesus tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Where do you struggle? And where in this season could you ask God to, to help you, to sure you up, to equip you to maybe tell the whole truth, or to kind of eliminate some things that maybe you've added to it in your, in your gospel conversations? John the Baptist was a faithful messenger of Jesus. And not only did he demonstrate his faithfulness through his content, he also demonstrated his faithfulness through his character. Uh, the Apostle John alludes to this in, in John chapter 1, verse 8. He, that is John the Baptist, was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. So already we're seeing John was not the Messiah. 
The gospel writer John tells us this. John himself will later say it. In verse 15, John bore witness about him, that is Jesus, and he cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me. What's John the Baptist doing? He's pointing away from himself. There's one who's coming who's greater than me. And then in verse 20, John confessed and did not deny, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. At every turn, John the Baptist is pointing people away from himself and putting the spotlight on Jesus. Friends, that is another part of being a faithful messenger of Jesus. You don't draw attention to yourself. You draw attention to the Savior who can actually save people. You cannot. We are not the Christ. So he directed everybody's focus on Jesus. Now remember, I mentioned that John's prologue is is pregnant. It's filled with these truths that he later revisits. And this morning, as we think about John the Baptist, I want to lean into one of those later sections in the Gospel of John that help us see this humble witness, this humble demeanor of John. In John chapter 3, you can look over there in your Bible with me, there's this uncomfortable conversation between John the Baptist's followers, and he had many of them. As his ministry began, multiple people were heeding the call of John the Baptist, and he had quite, quite the following. But then Jesus commenced his public ministry, and do you know what happened to John the Baptist's followers? They shrunk dramatically. His ministry, his star was falling as Jesus' star was rising, and some of John's followers got nervous. They say in verse 26, Rabbi, that means teacher, John, who was with you across the Jordan, this Jesus to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John the Baptist's followers are like panicking. John, everybody's going to Jesus now. Look, John, over there, he's baptizing, and all the people are now going to him. Well, what about us? What about our ministry? What about our little K kingdom? Uh, they're panicking here. And John the Baptist dispels their panic. He tells them this is exactly what's supposed to happen. He must increase, but I must decrease, John the Baptist said. These followers of John the Baptist experienced the painful yet redemptive reality of having their own little K kingdom crumble. It's a painful yet glorious thing when our little kingdoms crumble in order that we might see and focus on the big K kingdom, God's kingdom. It cannot be about you, your territory. That's not what it's about. It's about God's kingdom and us sharing in the joy of serving him together, not competing with other Christians or other churches or other ministries. We're in this together. It's about the big K kingdom, not the little K kingdom of your own territory. John wonderfully answers them in verse 27. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And then a wonderful statement. Look at John chapter 3, verse 30. He, that is Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. Oh, let that be your model as a disciple of Jesus. As you serve him in this world, he must increase, but I must decrease. That's the epitome of humility. John reminds his disciples of his original testimony 
that we read in John chapter 1, verse 20. Look at John chapter 1, verse 20. There John confessed and did not deny it, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And then later in chapter 3, verse 28, he reminds them, chapter 3, verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him to prepare the way. It's not about John the Baptist. It's not about John's disciples. It's not about Dane Helsing as the pastor of Beacon. It's frankly not even about Beacon Community Church. All it is about Jesus Christ. We are not the Christ. There is only one Christ. We are not people's many messiahs. We are to point people to the Messiah. And sometimes we can go throughout our lives as Christians with this Messiah complex that we have to be everything for people. No, no, no. You just have to be a faithful pointer, a sign pointing to Jesus. So guard yourself through your own charisma or your gregarious personality, through your teaching, sometimes softening, as we talked about, softening the truth, kind of attracting people to yourself. It's happened over and over again in Christian history. Christians pointing people to themselves instead of pointing people to Jesus. We are not the Christ. It is not about us. It's about the Lord Jesus. May we faithfully, humbly point people to Jesus because only he can save. You and I cannot. Only he can save. May we point people to him. John the Baptist paints this wonderful picture, this illustration of his role and, frankly, our role rightly understood. He uses this wedding illustration, verse 29 of chapter 3. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. You know what this illustration means. Do you know who the friend of the bridegroom is? It's the best man whose sole purpose is to support the bridegroom and to do everything that he can to make sure that that day goes off and that the bridegroom is honored. And in the end, he steps away as the bridegroom receives his bride. That was John's role. He was to fade into the back background once the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, came for his bride, the church, his, his people. John knew his role as best man. He was to step aside once that wedding procession happened and the bridegroom encounters his bride, his people. Now imagine with me, let's do this mental exercise. Uh, you're at a wedding, we've all been to weddings, and you see the processional, uh, the bridegroom and his groomsmen come out, they stand up front, right beside the bridegroom is who? The, the best man. And then one by one, the bridesmaids come and process down, and they stand opposite the groomsmen on each side. You've seen how this goes. And then everybody stands up, once canon and D is played, everybody stands up, and there she is, the bride with her father, the coming down center aisle, and she's coming, and then suddenly something very strange happens as the bride is coming down the aisle. Instead of going straight toward the bridegroom, suddenly she's, she's right of center, and she's moving over here, and suddenly you look at the bridegroom, and, and he's blowing kisses to the bride. Uh, the, the best man right here is blowing kisses with flirtatious looks, attracting the bride to himself. If you're in that wedding, it's appalling what's happening. 
It's entirely inappropriate at every level. And so it is, friends, when the best man, John the Baptist, were to draw attention to himself as as opposed to drawing attention to the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. John's role was to fade away and to put the whole spotlight on Jesus. And so it is, if we're to be faithful messengers, our role is to not stand in the spotlight, but to put the spotlight on Jesus. That's what it means to be a faithful messenger of Jesus. To be faithful in your content and to be faithful in your character, humility, pointing people away from yourself to Jesus who can do something about their predicament. So first, the messenger of Jesus. And second, we see this penetrating section on the responses to Jesus. Uh, The responses to Jesus. We see this in verses 9 through 13. He came to his own, his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Very simply, there are two responses to Jesus. And in the end, our eternal destinies hinge on our response to Jesus. Uh, One or the other will be our case. There's a simplicity here to responses to Jesus. One is rejection of Jesus. The other is reception of Jesus. There's two responses. Reception of Jesus. The other is rejection of Jesus. Our lives, our eternal destinies hinge on our response to Jesus. Which one will it be for you? Reception or rejection of Jesus. Perhaps you're here today, and if you're honest with yourself, you're not entirely sure where you stand with Jesus. Perhaps you have great questions about Christianity. Friend, that's a fine place to be. Continue to explore. Continue to ask those questions. Don't ever feel alienated when you have questions about the Bible or about the nature of Christ or about church. Continue to ask them. Continue to explore. Continue to investigate. That should be available at local churches. You shouldn't be ashamed. You should feel open to ask good questions. But be honest with yourself. If you had to list on a three-by-five note card, what are your objections to Jesus? Distill them. What is your hang-up in following Jesus? What, what are they? Write them down. Talk to somebody you trust about them. Explore, examine, do the hard work. And we want to come alongside you in that journey. Let's just have good conversations. We are not the Christ, but we want to help point you to the Christ who can answer your every question. So what are those questions? What, what are those hang-ups for you that leave you currently in a state of rejecting Jesus? Why did many of Jesus' own people not receive him? We see that sobering reality in verses 9 through 13. His own people, many of his own people did not receive him. Why? Friends, because Jesus didn't come on their terms. The Jews at the time of Jesus were expecting sort of this geopolitical ruler, one who came with military might and political prominence And would just wipe out the Romans who had occupied and oppressed the Jewish people for centuries. They were expecting a military conqueror. And when he came in weakness and lowliness, and especially when he died in weakness and lowliness on a cross, accursed in the Jewish mind. How could this be the Messiah? 
was a stumbling block to the Jews because he was a weak, fragile, uh, seemingly insignificant Messiah. They were expecting a Messiah in their own likeness, in their own image, on their own terms. But friends, Jesus never comes on our own terms. He comes on his own terms and invites us to surrender to those terms, not to force our own, not to put him in a box. They missed him because they were expecting him to come on their terms. I just want to warn you, as you explore who Jesus is, don't expect him to come on your terms. You can't put God in a box. He is beyond you. His thoughts are not your thoughts. His ways are not our ways. Don't be put off by the weakness of the gospel. The call of the gospel is to surrender to the king. The currency of his economy is weakness, suffering, and humility. That's what his kingdom is all about, this side of heaven. Weakness, suffering, difficulty. We're called to die to our self-will and pick up and embrace the will of Christ. Following Jesus, your life circumstances may not get better physically. In fact, they might get worse. But you will have a Savior who will sustain you and walk with you through all of the difficulty, all of the challenges, every circumstance. And it's a gift worth more than gold. Two responses to Jesus. Rejection and reception. What will it be for you? Notice this beautiful result of receiving Jesus in verse 12. Look at verse 12 with me. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You see, reception of Jesus Christ results in adoption into God's family. Reception of Jesus Christ results in adoption into God's family. The greatest place of belonging that a human being could ever have being welcomed into God's family. You see, our sin separates us from God, our creator. Sin estranges people from God. It separates us from him, a holy God, through our unholiness, our sin. And there is nothing we can do in our own human intuition or our own human merit to restore that relationship, to be reconciled. There's nothing. We are dead in our sin, separated from God, our creator, in need of somebody outside ourselves to come and reconcile that brokenness. The only way we can be brought back into God's family is through receiving the gift of Jesus. And once we do, we are adopted. We're ba brought back. That relational wound is now restored. We're welcomed in to the family of God when we welcome Jesus into our lives, when we trust in him. We are adopted, as John is saying here, and we have every right, every privilege as sons and daughters of God. A glorious blessing, being adopted into the family of God. This meets our most basic human desire. Every human has a longing for belonging. Every human has a longing for belonging. I had a conversation with a friend recently. He's kind of sharing his background. This dear friend knew isolation throughout his, most of his school career, middle school, high school. He was picked on, bullied, ate at a lunch table alone. There are so many people in our circles. If you're a student, if you're a young person in here, I just want to encourage you, 
Like, look for the outsider. When you're at a lunch table, look for the person who's alone. Every human being has a longing for belonging. One of the worst things that we can go through is isolation. If you're an employee, who's that employee who's like the outsider, the isolated one? This is the heart of Jesus. Who did Jesus hang out with during his earthly ministry? He went to the social outcasts, the pariahs, the people who would eat at the lunch table alone. He sought those people out. That's the heart of God, to welcome people who are isolated and estranged back into him. Every human being has a longing for belonging. We were born to belong in God's family. And this blessing of adoption welcomes us back in to the family. For all who did receive him, for all who did believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. And that is what we are through our belief in him. Trust in him. And you find a place of belonging that can never be taken away from you. The most meaningful, joy-filled, satisfying reality is adoption into the family of God. Belonging in the family of God. The messenger of Jesus and the responses to Jesus. Uh, this prologue of John's gospel is a deep well of truth. We'll continue to draw deeply from this well next Sunday as we conclude the series. We'll take a look at verses 14 through 18 and focus in on the incarnation of Jesus. The word became flesh. So join us next Sunday, the Lord's Day, as we look at this glorious truth, God became a man. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace in our lives. Uh, the blessings that you pour out upon us as we believe in you. What a joy-filled reality to be brought back into your family. We were created to belong into it, but in our sin, it separated us, estranged us from that family. And we're thankful that you didn't leave us in that state of separation, but you provided a glorious way for us to be brought back in through the life, death, and resurrection of your son. Oh God, help us to honestly, faithfully, diligently process this word, this good news, this message of Jesus who has come for us, come among us. Emmanuel, God with us. God, help us by the power of the Holy Spirit to believe. I pray for some in this room who are perhaps discouraged or distracted by doubts, by skepticism. Lord, would you please minister to our human minds, draw us to you, bring us into your family, and send us out as your messengers, inviting others to look to you in faith. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.